Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I am an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America and a lecturer at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer at Clemson University. All right. So this week, we're going to talk about a topic that is uh, rolls off the tongue and has really been on everyone's mind since the elections in Virginia and New Jersey a couple weeks ago. And that is the phenomenon of thermostatic politics. This is the idea that when one party is in power, public opinion kind of shifts toward the other party. And this you know, sometimes this is expressed in partisan terms that the president's party tends to do poorly in these weird, odd year elections for governor that they have in, in Virginia and New Jersey. The, the president's party tends to lose seats in the midterms. And sometimes it's framed more ideologically that the left actually moves or excuse me, the public actually moves to the left on on public policy issues when a Republican is in power, moves to the right when a Democrat is in power. And so this kind of thermostatic dynamic is bound to to present challenges for for Biden's presidency, just as it did for Trump's presidency in the the 2017 off-year elections and the 2018 midterms, just as it did for Obama's presidency and midterm elections. And if you recall back to those 2009 off-year elections that uh, the governor governors of Virginia and New Jersey elected that year were were Republicans and was widely seen as a kind of repudiation of the Obama agenda. So I have a lot of hobby horses with regard to this topic. I wrote about a few of them on Mischiefs of Faction uh, the day after the election. I think that was like November 4th or 3rd or something like that. And one of them that I've been thinking a lot about, I'm going to say two of them. One I've been thinking a lot about is that political scientists have sort of accepted this and like, ooh, irregularity, ooh, we're scientists now, um, and not thought enough about why this is. And my sense is that this is sort of a, a manifestation of the lack of responsiveness in American politics. And is it's really, you know, it's, it's good to have accountability, but it's really bad to have this kind of cycle where regardless of the issues at stake or the personalities in play, the leadership in play, that people are just kind of always pissed at whoever's in charge and there's never any real progress. There's never any rewarding people either for exercising policy restraint or for policy accomplishment. And I think that this is really an expression of dissatisfaction and, and failure to solve problems in the electorate. The other question, which maybe we can get to after that, is I've been thinking about this, how dramatically this narrative shifted, at least this is on academic poli-sci Twitter, which you know, you can make your own choices about whether that's a place you want to spend time. But it went really rapidly from this idea that Republicans are losing their majorities in all but a few places in the country and are no longer competitive in the suburbs, no longer competitive with college-educated voters, no longer competitive with minority voters. And as a result, that the Republican Party will have to shift into increasingly anti-majoritarian and anti-democratic activities. On November 2nd, Republicans won the state of Virginia, won the governorship in a close election, but by all accounts, you know, fairly fought um, clean election. They just simply um, won on the merits of, of what was going on. And and in New Jersey showed 
um, you know, the ability to be to be competitive even in a pretty blue state. So how does that shift that the discourse about what Republicans, you know, might do, what their incentives might be, if we now have this narrative that if you, you know, if you ask PolySci Twitter, they're not only are Republicans competitive in this sort of you know, broader range of, of electorates and constituencies, but that they're maybe even inevitable in those constituencies and the voters are shifting back to the Republicans. Does that have an, does that have an impact on what we expect to see um, in, in the world of democratic backsliding? So those are my two questions that I, I want to put to everybody. Lee, do you want to get us started? Yeah. So I, I want to tackle the, the, the first question first, because I, I have a few theories on what is happening beneath the surface of thermostatic politics. And, and it is kind of this remarkable uh, regularity that in almost every single election, the president's party loses seats in the midterms and the off-year elections. So there's there's something going on there. And uh, I think this is also the case in uh, many other advanced democracies that you know, public opinion tends to kind of go back and forth and somewhat in opposition to uh, what the government is is doing. Uh, now, I, I think you're right that, that it a lot of it is kind of this baseline dissatisfaction with uh, the inability of uh, the federal government to, to respond to public problems or at least fast enough and effective enough uh, ways to, you know, to make people feel like, wow, you know, that that election, you know, re- really, you know, sent a message to the politicians in Washington, and they've been uh, they've been listening and working hard. Uh, now, but beneath the surface, who is actually changing their vote? Now, there's some percentage of the electorate that is, you know, in a in an off year election like the the 2021 and, and soon to be 2022, which voted for Biden, you know, kind of more uh, kind of the, the like the low propensity voters tend to be younger voters, uh, lower income voters who were pretty jazzed up about getting Trump out of office and, you know, had the, had really been fired up in the whole campaign season. But now that Trump is kind of out of office and they're just kind of like tuning out of politics now. And so it's, you know, is there even an election? I don't I don't know. Right. Uh, and also to the extent that that like, you know, the Biden administration hasn't been as transformative as it was promised to be. So like you know, what's, what's the point? You know, we, we just elected Biden to do all these things and now things are more or less the same. Uh, And then there's the kind of just, just uh, inevitability that as a party, you know, as, as Democrats are in power, like certain things are just going to go wrong. Right. And if it wasn't Afghanistan or inflation, it would probably be something else. So the media is going to focus on the party in power and all their shortcomings. And, you know, now that people have forgotten a little bit about how disastrous Trump was or was perceived to be now, you know, most of the media narrative and most of the stories people are reading are about Democrats are fighting. Inflation is a problem. Afghanistan was a problem. Whatever it is, the media has sort of a a bias towards criticism, if nothing else. So that kind of dents the the uh, the opinion of the in, incumbent, and you know, there, there's just a whole lot of people who are just never going to be pro Biden voters, 
Uh, and they are now fired up because they're seeing all the awful things, awful in quotes, things that Biden is doing because they're watching conservative media and what a threat Democrats pose. And so they're they're excited and mobilized to vote in the same way that a lot of Democrats were much more excited to vote in 2018 than they were in 2016. Uh so I think all of those things kind of swirled together. The, the sport for the incumbent party is, you know, a little bit meh. Sport for the out party is, is higher because it's always a, uh, being out of power makes people more energized. And, you know, just the sort of inevitability of certain things going wrong uh, is going to hurt the whichever party is in power. Uh, and, and also in, in our sort of like Green Lantern presidency uh in which the president is seen as the savior who's going to fix everything that creates an inevitability of some disappointment. Uh, so that's, that's my kind of take on, on the kind of what's beneath the surface of thermostatic politics. What, what do you think I, of that, Julia, James? Well, I, wanna, I mean, I just, I want to pick up on what you just said and it's not just, I think the president that's going to fix everything. Although I certainly do believe and agree that we live in a presidency oriented um, kind of mental space when it comes to politics these days. But I think it's more that the government is going to fix all of our problems. And there's certainly problems the government can fix. There's problems that the government can ameliorate. There's problems that maybe the government can't, you know, this isn't a, you know, this isn't a conservative riff on, um, you know, government versus the private market or, you know, the private sector or anything else. But this question really interests me, or these this set of questions. So thank you, Julia. I mean, it really does. It's it brings up a lot, and I think it speaks to a lot of what's going on here. And you know, we speak to dissatisfaction, Lee. You said with the government's failure to respond to problems, and that may be the case. And you know, and that certainly I think explains Julia this trend we see where like people are just upset with those in charge, right? The f dissatisfaction and failure to solve problems. That is pervasive throughout the electorate. And I see that and I, and I agree, but is it that or is it that plus the fact that the government isn't even adjudicating their concerns? The fact that the government isn't a venue. You know, I think of politics as venues or places where people, actors, whether they're inside or outside of government, get together and they use a bunch of strategies and tactics. They have different resources to try to win in those places, whether it be a committee hearing, a floor in the House and Senate, the Oval Office, the Supreme Court room, you know, whatever it may be, but those are the kind of buckets. And if you think about those buckets, the decisions are increasingly made in venues where you can't, as a voter, ascertain the level of involvement of your member of Congress, of your president. It's hard to hold people accountable when you have no idea who's responsible and they're all playing the victim card. And I think this flows out of, it seems to me, this idea that, you know, there's an idea that parties are big tents and they represent lots of different people to win elections and then in lots of different coalitions and groups. And when they get into office, they bargain and they compromise. And then they policy outcomes reflect that. There's another idea of parties, right, that they're very cohesive policy links with the electorate, this kind of responsible party thesis. The idea is that you vote for Republicans because they stand for you know, apple pie, the good, the true, and the beautiful, and you vote for Democrats because they stand for standing up against the evil Republicans, whatever it may be, right? I mean, obviously, that's a big glib. Then there's a third 
description of parties and our electorate uh, that I think is more apt for this question. And that is that that actors, policymakers, lawmakers, when they get into office, they 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 make policy to win elections or they or they take action to win elections. I mean, policy is still there, but it's all to win elections. And I think that speaks to our electoral focus today. And it's just if you are if you are always doing things to win elections instead of adjudicating concerns in between elections, and increasingly they're not even making policy to win elections. They're talking about critical race theory. They're talking about there's they're fine. You know, you you talk about um, you know all kinds of stuff that may or may not be the problem instead of actually trying to a advance policy to address that problem, which is striking strikingly lacking on either side, or b you're not doing anything at all. And so I think that's the system problem. And when the system stops working, it makes sense to me that the people are dissatisfied. It, it makes sense to me that there's, they're, they're not getting that itch scratched because after all, that's what politics is all about. It's all about getting together and arguing with your equals, your fellow citizens about, and your representatives doing it, about how you want to make collective decisions in particular places. And one of my concerns about this, this idea and public opinion in general is that, you know, and I was listening to the other day, it's fun, I, I really enjoy it. Um, Bruce Springsteen and, and, and Barack Obama, the former president, uh, their podcast, and that can be a whole other podcast if we want. Um, it's very interesting. But on the first episode, Springsteen said something that was, I think, the boss, right, said something that was very, very insightful. And at first, my kind of classical greets side of me rebelled against it. But the more I thought about it, it was absolutely true that politics evolves out of the personal. Politics evolves out of the personal. And that is so true because it, we are individuals. We put, wake up in the morning, we put our feet on the ground, we try to go out, we want certain policies to impact our lives, our specific individual particular lives in certain ways. But then increasingly when we talk about public opinion, we lose sight of the individual. We lose sight of the individual. We lose sight of groups of individuals. We talk about soccer moms, right? Okay, that's well and good. But who are the individuals? What are the things that they're struggling with? What are the preferences that they're trying to prioritize? What are their belief structures? How are they ordering those things? How are the, the choices they're presented with impacting them? And, and we get stuck in this thing. Public opinion has a, a kind of very, this kind of approach has a, it's almost like it, it disempowers us to change the world by looking at these kind of macro trends. And I'm not saying that's what you two are doing, but in general, uh, that's what I think, you know, we lose sight of the personal, we lose sight of the actual person, we lose sight of the specifics. And when you do that, it becomes harder to make policy, to compromise, to bargain, to do all kinds of things. It's harder for politics to actually work. But okay, but I mean, people don't engage in politics as individuals, people engage in politics as groups, they engage through political parties. So like, like, and people's whole perception, I mean, like, if you're going to critique public opinion, I think the the problem with public opinion is that people that, that you know, people are, are much more influenced by groups and, and party leaders and political uh, elites than they are. I mean, I, I, that there's no kind of core structure for most people of political values or ideas or desires. It's what, what they're told that they should want or, or what the options are presented to them. And so, I mean, in some ways, public opinion is meaningless to this, to the extent that like, you know, suddenly education is a top issue for people in Virginia. 
Uh, now, why is that? Is it because suddenly people woke up one day and said, what I really care about is what's being taught in our schools? Or is it because Glenn Youngkin decided that he was going to make that his top campaign issue and he ran this whole Parents First campaign? Uh, so suddenly, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, education is really important. You know, I mean, we, we, we know this with crime, that that the salience of crime is not uh, related to the actual levels of crime. It's related to the extent that politicians are talking about them. Now, of course, we can talk about this point in a little bit more detail, but in the this, this binary Democrat versus Republican system in which people only have two options, like public opinion is in some ways kind of meaningless because people are just choosing between party A and party B. And if they're not happy with party A, they can either vote for party B or just stay home. Uh, there, there's no way to send a, a meaningful signal that they're dissatisfied other than by, you know, voting for the other party or not. So um, and I want to turn over back to Julia Lee, but just real quick. I mean, in a sense, though, and I agree with you, but I share that kind of reflexive kind of negative reaction against the idea that people don't think for themselves. And I don't think this is true of everybody. And it's certainly not. I don't want to sound like this kind of elitist that says, oh, you know, the, the grassroots aren't thinking for themselves. That's not my point. And I don't think that's what you're saying per se, but that you're right. They do in terms of emphasis. They're reacting to the agenda, the public's agenda, the government's agenda. It's all impacting one another. But I will say this, though, it is partly that's how politics works sometimes, too, though. And politics has worked in the past that way. I mean, for instance, political parties. One of the reasons, at least since Martin Van Buren, political parties provide cues. They lower the information cost of voting. Groups provide cues. Our partisan identification, we know that you filter information and ideas through a partisan lens. And so on one hand, that sounds like really kind of Orwellian to me, like, oh, my God, like what, what are we missing about reality? But on the other hand, I'm like, well, that's how it's always been. My question is, why is it that today, today, everybody seems to be dissatisfied with the status quo? I don't know anybody who's happy with it. Public opinion on the, on the government and trust and government, all kinds of stuff, it's just abysmally low. Yes, it may change who's really, really upset at certain times based on who's in office, but nothing ever changes. In the past, it seems to me, and I know we can all look to the past with rose-colored glasses and say like, oh, it was different then. But there were like, you could point to and identify and say those people are engaged in this collective action in a group to try to change things, whether they're marching in the streets, whether they're sitting at lunch counters, whether they are organizing like uh, other big money, big uh, deep pocketed people to fund organizations. You've been in a cave for the last year. People have been protesting. People have been taking action. I mean, th there's been a, a huge protest movement. There has people been are, a people, huge, people are organizing. I mean, but what's interesting to me is that if you read, if just go, if you read and, and you look at what's happening in the 60s and 70s in, say, Washington, D.C., there is an acknowledgement of the of the permeability between the inside and the outside. And the inside reacts to this great unrest. Look, in the 60s, everybody was pissed off. Conservatives, liberals, everybody in between. And they were all acting in different ways to try to change the system. And then the system is also responding in various ways. Today, the way we respond to that is through elections. Full stop. We respond to it. And then, yes, there is some effort to do things behind closed doors and stuff like that. But, you know, there's no real like even on the conservative outliers, the, the liberal outliers. There's no so far as I can tell real energy and push to kind of take that dissatisfaction and just burn the place down. And I say that not in a, in a violent way, by all means. But you understand what I'm saying. There is it. It's, it's not we're missing something. 
And I think that speaks, the reason that missing something, that missing link, I think speaks to, and I don't have all the answers, but I think it speaks to the dissatisfaction that we see right now because government isn't responding to everything that the people think it ought to respond to. And I think a big part of that is the fact that it's not adjudicating their concerns. They're just told the other people are the problem. Well, after a while, that's only gets you so far. I mean, you still feel pretty awful because you're working three jobs and you're a single mom or you roads you drive on to go to work every morning or completely messed up. Or eventually it's like, well, I don't care whose problem it is. Can somebody at least try and let me see if you fail? Okay, then maybe we can see that why that's not working. Right. I mean, that's what I'm trying to get at. It's it's that kind of like what's missing that wasn't missing necessarily in the past. Sorry, Julia. Sorry, I think the so intersection of what the two of you are saying is some of the issue, right? Which is that in order to get, in order to accomplish something politically, people need to organize. And that means they need to have some trust in the sort of the kind of venues of organization or the, the conduits of organization. And that's something I've been working on a lot, um, working on, I don't know if I've talked about this in the podcast before, but um, looking at the open-ended responses in, in various surveys, one of the ones I've been working with a graduate student um, on is the, the open-ended responses for the 2018 Baker Institutional Confidence Poll, where they ask people to rate different institutions, their confidence in different institutions, and they ask them why. The answers, I think, are very are very revealing. And we're kind of focused on the intellectually on this question of is distrust uh, in political parties similar to distrust in other kinds of institutions? But, you know, one thing that comes up that I have not seen in the political science discourse on distrust in political parties in particular, it also comes up in the press and people's distrust, lack of confidence in the press, is their sense that everything is run by people with a lot of money. And in some ways, we could write this off as a, as a shallow populist trope, but it comes up a lot. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a totally invalid critique, especially of political parties, that the, the people that are really in charge and really have leverage are people who have it inordinate amounts of money. And I mean, this is one of the things that's changed since the 1970s. It's actually multiple changes, right? Inequality has grown. So wealth is concentrated in more hands. One of the, and I am not a nostalgist for the mid 20th century, as I think everybody knows. But one of the things that was different was the distribution of wealth. And the other thing, you know, we have changed campaign finance laws that have weakened, in some ways, weakened formal parties. And increasingly, every time we make another campaign finance law, it's like filled with loopholes for increasingly more concentrated wealth to have disproportionate political power. And this is this is not my ideological disposition at all. But I'm starting to really be sympathetic to some of these populist claims that institutions are fucked because they are. And yet at the same time, there's not a really great alternative to institutions you can't really do that much to change politics, you know, on your own. I know that this is a, this is a kind of a stereotype that, you know, the Margaret Mead quote about one person can change the world. One person typically changes the world by mobilizing other people. And if people distrust the conduits of that mobilization, they distrust the press, they distrust the political parties, they, they distrust the elected institutions then you get into sort of, I mean, this is where I'm getting into your territory, Lee, sort of a negative, a neg- I'll call it a negative spiral, but you call it a doom, what is it, a doom, doom loop? Um, available at your favorite book seller. You should check it out. It's also available on ebook. It's a great book. I want to talk about the, and the audiobook. world on the press. Okay, That's what I'm in, actually. talking and then you can promote your book. I'll let you guys talk for like 20 minutes. So the other thing I want to talk about here is the role of the media, because this has been, this has been going around in my mind more about the, 
legislation that, um, you know, the two big bills that one of which has just passed and one has not. The thing that, that keeps kind of striking me is that people like some of the prominent media critics like Jay Rosen and people like that have talked about how our news media is not prepared for, um, to be in a system where one of the two parties is authoritarian. I think our news media is also in some ways not prepared drawing on these same sort of like early 20th century journalistic principles is also not prepared for a situation in which people are, are sort of intrinsically distrustful. Um, the whole idea of holding, holding people to account, approaching issues with skepticism, talking about what government is doing wrong. Like these are all really important media values and I don't have an alternative to them. Yet at the same time, I feel like a lot of the coverage where it's like, look at what the Biden administration is doing. Look at all the things that are wrong with this bill. Look at the Democrats in disarray are like, on the one hand, highlighting things that, that need to be highlighted. And then on the other hand, and we should approach legislation with skepticism, like for sure. But on the other hand, we also need to have some sort of baseline sense that public policy can achieve ends and nevertheless has to make trade-offs if we don't have that basic sense then we can't have a democracy or a society or a functioning government and so i've been thinking a lot about that as sort of the role of a of a kind of skeptical media in an, in a society that is set to default uh, to distrust so those are my two thoughts i really want though to get to um Lee's question. So I know Lee has been thinking a lot about thermostatic politics and the structure of the party system. So I want to get to that. And I think we're going to have to table our discussion of the Republican Party and elections and authoritarianism for another day. So I think we can probably fill a whole podcast with that. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I agree with you about the media. Um, and, you know, I, I also think, you know, uh, as we've discussed many times in this podcast that because politics is about conflict, that media is going to cover conflict. And to the extent that Democrats are fighting with each other because the Republicans are just the Republican opposition is, is an old story. Uh, and the Biden administration seems to want to have this idea that somehow we're going to have unity and consensus and we shouldn't attack Republicans uh, you know, and we shouldn't draw sharper contrasts kind of leads the story to be about Democrats fighting amongst themselves. Uh, now, I mean, my, my point about thermostatic politics in the two party system is simply that if people are frustrated with the Democratic Party, they have but one other option, and that option is to, well, I guess they have two options. They could not vote at all, um, or they could vote uh, Republican, but both of those options essentially have the same uh, political consequence, which is that they mm, help Republicans win elections. Uh, there's no real way to exercise a meaningful protest vote because there's you know no um, other parties that people can vote for. I mean, I guess there maybe are some third, some minor, you know, irrelevant third parties here and there, uh, but there's no real meaningful way to kind of send a message that you want something different uh, without endorsing the total 
opposite. Now, this also keeps both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in, in business more generally, despite w- what they do, just by virtue of being the opposition. Uh, but you know, I, I think it it kind of leads to this kind of stagnation of, you know, James was talking about, you know, a, a lack of responsiveness, you know, a lack of, of action. Uh, you know, so you know, new parties typically, to the extent that they've existed in the U.S., have raised issues that neither of the two parties um uh, we're addressing. I mean, in other countries, they they raise issues. They give a, you know, they give voters more opportunity to kind of you know have different. I mean, if we take the thermostatic politics metaphor, more opportunities to have different settings on the dial. Um, you know, rather than having two settings, one being you know freezing cold and one being you know way too hot. Um, and eventually, you know, the the hot keeps getting hotter, and you, know, you just burn the house down. Uh, so seems like, you know, one, one obvious, you know, solution would just be to have more settings on the dial. Yeah. I, this has been one of the more, I think, persuasive, uh, arguments about having multiple parties. And I started thinking about this as I was, uh, discussing this book with my undergrads and also discussing the election last week that in particular, that having multiple parties would allow some sort of safety valves for um, kind of showing that people are dissatisfied, you know, with politics. I think that that actually makes, this actually makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that has been, I think, really interesting, bringing this back around to this sort of question about how this impacts the two parties or the sort of two party politics, political dynamics is that while clearly the Republicans have taken an abnormal turn, I don't think we can, we can deny that. That's, you know, not, not every Republican, but the Republicans who are committed to certain pluralistic values have continued to leave the party or increasingly be sort of pushed out. Republicans have taken an abnormal turn. And the Trump years were not normal. And yet, the elections have remained normal really kind of the whole time. That was really striking to me in 2016. And it was striking to me in 2021. And, you know, with this, this recent round of, of off-year elections. Um, I should have probably led with with an idea about being a little cautious about how we interpret these, these elections, but they're, they're widely being interpreted as evidence of this sort of thermostasis. And it's interesting to me that this is really persistent across changing, changing ideas and political conditions. Um, but, okay. Uh, go for it. I, you know, and I, I mean, this is, I think it gets, again, it gets strikes to the core of kind of how I I'm looking at, politics these days and lee when you say more settings on the valve and as you know i'm a i'm a big fan of mixing things up and making it easier for people to act and generally speaking if i'm asked about a congressional reform a new rule a new rule in politics whether or not this is a good idea my kind of rule of thumb is does it make it easier or harder for people to act if it makes it easier then let's giddy up let's do it let's try it out let's see what's going to happen if it makes it harder then I suspect that it reinforces the current status quo. And so when you say more settings on the dial though, if we say, if we assume that the settings are people or partisans or you know, individuals, then how they act inside places like Congress matters. And if the additional settings on the dial act like the ones we have now, I'm not sure it makes any difference. And the reason why I find this is such a is a, is a big problem for me is because right now I look at the Republican and Democratic parties in Congress and I see the exact same behavior. 
I see the exact same behavior regardless of who's in control. I see the exact same behavior regardless of who's in the White House. And it tells me that the problem is more deeply rooted and that it is bipartisan. It is not necessarily partisan. And it is not that we have a bunch of authoritarians running around really, really trying to, to do authoritarian things. It's that we have a bunch of people that are, who, whoever they are, are not really doing much of anything. And, and Julia, to go back to your point about people in charge with money, I think it's a very apt point. And if we, if we substitute money with resources and we substitute in charge with favor the status quo, and you say that people who favor the status quo are the people with resources, that I think makes a lot of sense. The status quo reflects, it reflects the last kind of battle, if you will. And the people who won are the ones who are in charge, so to speak. And so if you want to change the status quo, <clears throat> whether you're from the left or the right, if you think about it in these terms, you say, well, how do I change the status quo? Well, first of all, you're not going to do it from just purely inside Congress. I do acknowledge that because after all, the status quo is stacked against you. Look at the civil rights reformers in the 50s and 60s. You have to go outside, but you go outside and play an outside game for the purposes of leveraging that outside strength to improve your position on the inside, either with new votes and new colleagues who agree with you or by pressuring the members who are there who don't currently agree with you. And I think that speaks to this conflictual aspect of politics, this kind of give and take. There's a, I, I gave a, presented a paper at Harvard a couple years ago, and there's three quotes, three quotes that I, I led with uh, that I kind of read off before I introduced the paper. And it was a, the paper was kind of an indictment of, of legislative politics, a study of it more generally but these days. But the first one, and I'll stop after this, is that, you know, it was from the, the great Elmer Schottschneider, right? And it says the concepts formulated here, and he's describing, this is in his book, Semi-Sovereign People, constitute an attack on all political theories, all research techniques and concepts tending to show that American politics is a meaningless stalemate about which no one can do anything. Then there's Senator Ted Kennedy, the late Senator Ted Kennedy. He wrote a member memoir. I think member memoirs tend to be terrible regardless of the partisan affiliation of the person writing them. Uh, however, in this member memoir, True Compass, there's a fabulous description of the Senate. Absolutely fabulous. One of the best I've ever read. And, it's, and, he, and he describes the Senate as a chemical body. And he says, something happens when senators are all in the room debating an issue, especially when everyone understands that they're going to stay in and not adjourn until we get things done. And then lastly is the infamous Mike Tyson, who says everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Now, what do, what do all these things have in common? They have a sense of possibility and optimism. I, you know, it was kind of a weird thing with Tyson, of course. They have a sense that nothing is foreordained. And they have a sense of that individuals, Americans, can, by acting, change politics. They have always done that. That's the way it works in groups and in other situations. And I think there's a certain sense of pe pessimism today. And, and that, that that is no longer the case. And my point is that that pessimism seems to coexist alongside a trend in our scholarship and in our media and in the way we all, from like just your regular person on the street to the, the senator and president and congressman, how we think about politics in a way that we've kind of lost sight of that individual and we've lost sight of that power of agency. You know, and I've said this before on this podcast, if Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks thought about politics like we do today, they wouldn't have gotten involved in the Montgomery bus boycott. After all, Eisenhower sent in the, the guard. They got the presidency. The Supreme Court said from on high, this is not right. They won. What's the point? What's the point of 
of getting out there, rolling up your sleeves and, and engaging in the hard work of politics to try to persuade your fellow Americans. You got, you've already, you've won, at least from our perspective today. But of course they hadn't. And they knew that. And that's something that I think we've lost sight of today. And I think that's one of the reasons why we find politics so hollow and dissatisfying to us. When this is if we're left or right, conservative, liberal, anything in between. It's, this is, I think, a commonality we all share. I'd love to unpack this overall reading of social <laughs> movements and civil rights, but maybe we should do that off the air. I've been thinking a lot about this, about how the sort of story of the story of civil rights and of other types of social movements, labor rights, things like that, are stories of people who were marginalized, excluded, socially stigmatized, and um, pursued power through uh, different means, pursued influence, pursued inclusion. Um, and I've been thinking about the ways in which other, the ways in which those feelings of exclusion and powerlessness seem widespread into people who sort of are formally included, that we have an expansive democracy now where far more people are formally included in, in things like being able to serve on a jury or being able to vote. And at the same time, that the sense of, of political efficacy has has decreased and that as our democracy, I mean, my take on this is as our democracy has become more democratic, the sort of powers that be have, have <laughs> ensured that these these mechanisms of democracy are increasingly meaningless. Um, and, and that does sort of go back to my theory about thermostatic politics being an expression of nothing ever changing and everything sucking. And that, you know, Democrats get power, Republicans get power, policies get passed, they don't get passed, and people still are seeing their sort of purchasing power go down, their control over their lives decrease. And that's not a specific comment on, uh, on inflation, but just on, you know, generally how I think the labor market is structured and things like that. So I'm, uh, I'm going to hand it to Lee for final thoughts. And um, yeah, thank you all for invigorating discussion. All right. Well, uh, you know, I, I, I actually think there is a ton of action happening in politics right now. And, and, and the, the level of social movement organization is much higher now than it has been in recent years. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I look at the Senate. I see Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and others acting. I also see the progressives acting and you know, flexing their muscles. And this takes us to our the, the conversations we're having about popularism, you know, which is the extent to which the progressives just need to shut up so that Democrats can win elections, uh, which I you know. I think is a is a somewhat misguided uh, view of things, uh, but it is the the view because the the Democratic coalition needs to hold together in, or, in order to win majorities within Congress. Now, imagine if the Democratic Socialists had their own party um, and the Democratic Moderates had their own party, and they could run independent of each other. Uh, then they, the the democratic left, the progressive left, wouldn't be cowed into having to be quiet just so that the, the democratic moderates could win the suburbs. And then we'd, I think, have some real conflict, and things would be multi-dimensional and 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 lively. Uh, but the this whole uh, need to win a majority in a two-party system is constantly used as a cudgel. Uh, you know, to, to get the the rowdy folks to to, to shut up and, and sit down so that Democrats can win elections and then not 
really have these fights, or at least not have them in public, have them in private, uh, to, to your point, and so people can't can't see them as much. Although then when when we see these fights, I mean to <laughs> to uh, you know, it's the story is Democrats in disarray. So this this gets to the point about the media not being equipped. Anyway, uh, th- that is my final rant, and that is another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.